I was in the seventh grade. And at my school, our middle school, every locker was shared by two students. So everybody had a locker partner. And I was in luck because my locker partner was my best friend. His name was Bill Beckman. And one morning I got to school a little early and I went and found my locker, our locker, and I opened up the door and I noticed that all of Bill Beckman's stuff was gone. It was missing, it wasn't there. And I was a little bit confused and I started asking around and said, hey, have you guys seen Bill? Do you know where Bill Beckman is? And somebody said, oh, I think I saw him out on the basketball court playing basketball. And I thought, well, that's a little weird. He doesn't even play basketball. But I went and looked for him. And I remember standing there on the sideline of the basketball court in the playground. And I saw my best friend, my locker partner, Bill Beckman, playing basketball with some other guys. And I said, hey, Bill, where's your stuff? And I remember it like it was yesterday. He looked over his shoulder and he called out to me and he said, oh, I ditched you. I'm with these guys now. Thanks for laughing at me. Uh, Mike Gregorio was laughing heartily at poor seventh grade lonely Nathan. There's still a part of me that's standing on the sideline of that basketball court, feeling all alone. I got ditched that morning. It was a long, lonely semester, going to my locker every morning and seeing Bill Beckman's stuff gone, a friendship lost. Well, today we read a scripture story in which Jesus also got ditched. Did you notice that, that last verse that Heather read? For us, verse 56, it ends with these words, Then all the disciples left him and fled. Jesus got ditched. <laughs> We're in this sermon series we're calling The Road, and we see in this piece of the story that the final road Jesus walked, he walked alone. Where was he going on this final road? He was going to the cross. He was going to a place where no one else could go with him. He was doing for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. He walked that final road alone. Everyone around him, those closest to him, left him, and worse, they betrayed him. And in the great mystery of the faith, we recognize two things are true at once. One, Jesus walked that final road alone. But also, two, he invites us in a mystical sense to follow him there on that lonely journey. Jesus once said to his disciples and says to us this morning, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. So those two things are true at the same time. He walked it alone. He went to the cross alone, but he also says, follow me there. In other words, walk the way, walk the path of the cross. It can be lonely sometimes. You might lose friends to your left and to your right, but follow me on this road, on this journey to the cross and beyond. So I want us to look at this story this morning, a few of the details in it, so that we can help ourselves understand what it's like to, to be with Jesus on that lonely road to the cross. Let's look together at verse 47 to begin. It says, While Jesus was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs, 
from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Imagine this just for a moment. This is something I love to do when I read the gospel stories. Imagine this story through the eyes of somebody who was there. Let's imagine this story actually through the eyes of Jesus. Okay, I'm going to read that verse again. Just try to picture this scene through the eyes of Jesus. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve. And with Judas, a great crowd with swords and with clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Can you see it through Jesus' eyes? Judas, one of the twelve, one of his disciples, one of his companions, one of his best friends, is coming to find Jesus, and Jesus knows what he's about to do. He's about to betray him, and Judas has come with a posse. Judas has come with a crowd of people with swords and with clubs. You know, that day I stood on the sideline of the basketball court and Bill Beckman broke my heart by saying I ditched you. At least the people he was hanging out with they weren't carrying weapons in their hands coming after me. This is what Jesus is experiencing in this moment. Pick up the story in verse 48. Now the betrayer, that's Judas, had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. What betrayal. Judas and Jesus, along with the other disciples, probably greeted each other all the time with a kiss. It was a common thing in that custom. It was like a friendly hug or a handshake to us. And here Judas comes and he's on a mission not to offer just a gesture of love, but to allow that gesture of love to be a signal to the people with swords and clubs to seize Jesus. What a betrayal. Greetings, Rabbi, he says. A gesture of love twisted into a gesture of betrayal. How's your day going for you, Jesus? Judas comes with a crowd with swords and clubs and gives you a kiss as a signal of betrayal. Verse 50, the signal works. Verse 50, Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up, laid hands on Jesus, and seized him. Now in this moment, I want us to, to switch who we are in the story. I wanted us to picture Judas coming up. I wanted to picture that through Jesus' eyes. But now I want us to picture ourselves as one of the disciples standing by and watching this. You've just seen what's happened. Judas has betrayed Jesus with a kiss. The authorities have grabbed him and seized him. There's Jesus bound. They've seized him. They have possession of Jesus, your rabbi, your friend. What do you want to do in that moment as a disciple standing there watching that? Be honest, what, what, what impulses come up for you right now? What do you want to do? Well, I'll tell you what one person did. In the next verse, it tells us, verse 51. And behold, one of those who are with Jesus, we learn in the other Gospels that this is Peter. So behold, one of those who are with Jesus stretched out his hand, drew his sword, and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Okay, there's one option. Did anyone have an impulse like that a moment ago when you imagined it? You want to protect Jesus. Do you know who just got seized by the authorities? This is Jesus. This is the one changing the world through the revolution of love and the truth. 
He's been seized by the authorities. I, I got to go protect him. And this is what Peter does. This is classic Peter, if you know Peter from the New Testament. He pulls out his sword. Now, I have to explain the sword just real briefly. Likely, the disciples of Jesus carried with them a small little dagger. You know, it was for things like cleaning fish after they had caught the fish or opening their Amazon packages when they came in the mail. You know, simple little things like that. It wasn't like a big Roman sword like you might picture in ancient times. It was a little tool like a leatherman that somebody might have on their belt today. And he pulls this out and he does the best thing he knows how to do to protect Jesus. And he ends up cutting off the ear. Maybe he was aiming for the head of the person. We don't know. But he's doing what he thought was necessary to protect Jesus. That's one option. But Jesus, upon seeing this, says, No, not that, Peter. Look what Jesus says in verse 52. Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. I want us just to dwell on this statement for a moment. Because I don't know if you're like me, but when I imagine myself in that position, watching Jesus, precious Jesus, get seized by the authorities, there's a little bit of Peter in me. I feel an impulse to want to reach for whatever tool, whatever weapon I have at my disposal to protect Jesus, to protect the movement of Jesus, to protect all that would come after that scene. I want to protect that. And so there's a part of me that wants to pull out that sword, that tool, that means to say, Jesus needs my protection. But Jesus looks at me just as he looked at Peter that evening, and he says, not that way. That's not the way we're going. When you follow me on the path to the cross, on the road to the cross, you won't need any tools or weapons from this world. Put it back. Anyone who uses the sword will die by the sword. What Jesus is describing here, basically, is the cycle of vengeance. The cycle of recycled revenge. If you use the sword, you will die by the sword. If Jesus had simply allowed that moment to play out, let's imagine for a moment, Jesus saw what Peter did. He pulled out his sword. He cuts off the ear of the, of the servant. What if Jesus had signaled then to the other disciples saying, yeah, guys, do that. Good job, Peter. I wonder if they all pulled out their leathermans and they started fighting and there was a skirmish between the authorities and the disciples. There would have been some political tensions rising in Jerusalem that night and maybe they would have killed Jesus on the spot. I don't know. But he wouldn't have continued on his road, on his path to the cross and beyond. The whole plan would have been thwarted, possibly. We might not even know Jesus' name to this day if Jesus had simply participated in the cycle of recycled revenge. He says, put that sword away. And Jesus goes a step further, too. In the other Gospels, we learn that he actually reaches out and he heals the ear of the servant who's just been injured. See what Jesus is doing there? He's introducing something that would stop the cycle of recycled revenge. Jesus introduces healing. He introduces grace. His touch brings healing and grace to the situation. And that right there is a picture. It's a microcosm of what would happen on the cross. Because the whole world is caught in the cycle of recycled revenge all the time. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Lock her up, lock him up. 
I'll get you back. You'll pay for that. And we all are sinning against the Father all the time. And what God could do in his righteous judgment is he could, he could participate in the cycle of recycle revenge too. And he could say, look at all these people sinning against me. I'll get them back with my wrath. But instead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit chose the gracious choice to send Jesus to the cross to capture the cycle, to capture the wrath so that it would go upon Jesus and not upon us. And he stops the cycle, just like Jesus did that night. When Peter cut off the ear, Jesus says, now put the sword away. Let me heal. And the tension de-escalated. Grace changed the situation. Grace is more powerful than any tool, any weapon from this world. You realize that? I think there's an important word for us here because there's a lot of people I'm seeing in our society right now. There's a lot of Christians who are reaching for their swords. There's a lot of Christians who are reaching for worldly tools and means. And it comes from a good place. We think we have to protect Jesus. We think we have to protect the church. We think we have to protect the movement in Jesus' name. It appears weak, just as Jesus appeared weak that night. And so we reach for things and we think he needs our protection. Hardly a week goes by that I, as a pastor, don't get an email from somebody saying, don't you want to tell the governor to stop putting those restrictions on religious worship? And Pastor Dave and I have been joking about this. I keep looking in the New Testament for that verse that says, stick it to the man. I just can't find it anywhere in there. No, it says, follow Jesus on his humble path to the cross. I get those emails saying, basically, stick it to the man. The church needs protection. It's like Peter whipping out his sword. But did you see all these new members lined up here today? Praise the Lord. The emails are saying, the church needs protecting. And I'm saying, no, it doesn't. The government can put whatever restrictions on us they want. It won't stop the kingdom of God. It'll keep growing. It'll keep growing. It'll keep growing. And the gates of hell won't prevail against it. We follow Jesus. We stay the course. We follow him on his humble path to the cross. We lay down our rights. We lay down our lives. He doesn't need our protection. His love goes on no matter what's coming against him. Verse 53, Jesus drives home the point. He asks this profound question. I love the questions of Jesus. Look what he says to Peter and to us. Do you think that I can't appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? What a great question. He looks at us pulling out our dagger saying, we'll protect Jesus. And Jesus says, oh, if you could see what I see, if you could see into the heavenly realm like Elisha's servant all those years ago, Elisha's servant was able to look into the spiritual realm and he reported to Elisha, He's, he's like, I see something out there. It's the best way I can describe it. It's like chariots of fire. He was seeing warrior angels ready to defend the people of God. Jesus can see those same warrior angels. Jesus could have called upon them. He could have said, okay, Father, now send the angels to protect me. I need protection. But he held them off. Why? Because of what it says in the very next verse. 
How then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? The scriptures, the faith, the sovereign plan of God was that Jesus would go to the cross, that he would die, that he would receive that cycle of recycled revenge. He would receive God's wrath upon himself so that by his grace, we all could be set free from that cycle. We could become people of grace, people who turn the other cheek, people who say, God loves you no matter what you've done. And he went to the cross, and three days later he rose again, and the rest, as they say, is history. And he calls us to follow him on that road. He doesn't say, be like Peter. Reach for your daggers every time the church is under threat. He says, no, put away those swords. I don't need protection. Follow me to the cross. Follow me the humble way. It might be lonely. You might lose friends to the left and to the right. But if you follow me, we'll change the world. We'll change the world. It's a better way. It was a lonely semester for me there in the seventh grade. <laughs> Every day going up to that locker, remembering the betrayal of Bill Beckman. But God had a plan. God had a plan. Just a couple of months later, I started discovering and rediscovering some of my own classmates, guys by the name of Brad and Nick and Riley. These guys became brothers in Christ for me. To this day, they are brothers in Christ for me. If you were here for the day that I got installed as senior pastor, you saw seven or eight guys lined up in the front pew here to support me. Bill Beckman betrayed me, but the Lord provided new friends that I would walk with. We did Bible study. As soon as we had driver's licenses, sophomore year, we would drive over to the diner next to the school, and we would have Bible study together through high school. And they are still my brothers in Christ. So it's possible you're feeling alone. It's possible you're losing friends and to the left and to the right by following Jesus, his humble path to the cross. But make no mistake, you are in the sovereign will of God, and he has a better plan for you and for all of us. Let's follow him there. Amen.